I'm going to invite you to open to John chapter 8. We will actually begin studying this morning verse by verse through chapter 9. But before we begin here in chapter 9, it's imperative we remember that in chapter 8, the Lord gave a very clear discourse on the light of the world and that He is that light. Beginning in verse 12 of chapter 8, Jesus said during the Feast of Tabernacles, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. In verse 21, he told the religious Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, that I'm going away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. For where I go, you cannot come. If you look at verse 24, Jesus said, if you do not believe that I am, okay, him is italicized, so that's inserted there for our understanding. Jesus is saying, if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sin. To the group there, in the court of the women during the great feast of tabernacles, who were hearing the words of Christ to the religious Jews, they began to reason within themselves that perhaps this is Messiah. And to that group, Jesus answers in verse 31, if if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. So consequently, salvation and discipleship are confirmed by obedience to a hunger for and a desire to know the words of Christ. So anyone who proclaims to be saved by grace will have a hunger for the truth of God and a desire to obey that truth because they've been enabled by God's grace to obey. It's the result of salvation. Obedience to, abiding in Christ, desire for Christ, is not something you do to earn salvation. It is the product of salvation. It's a result of the glorious work of God by His grace. Only then, in verse 32, would they know the truth that sets men free. And then from John 8.37 on to the end of the chapter, Jesus absolutely destroys the faith, false faith, and empty securities of tradition and religious lineage for which these Jews completely depended upon. That was their security, all of which was false. Jesus claimed power over death in verse 51 and, to, and declared to be greater than Abraham. And Abraham was the ultimate figure of humanity in the mind of the Jew. Jesus said, I am greater than Abraham. And the last statement of Jesus to these Jews in the temple was this, before Abraham ever was, I am. I am. That statement declares deity, I am God. And the response of those Jews to this ultimate claim of deity is revealed in verse 59. It was murder. They took up stones to throw at him. They didn't stone him because it was not yet his what? 
was not yet his hour, it was not yet his time. But their motivation here is no different from those who aspire to reject and crucify Jesus Christ today. Certainly not physically, but in their mind. They want to run from the light. They don't want the truth. They will resist the truth. They will do everything to push off, push away the truth of the gospel. They're condemned. All unbelievers are condemned. Jesus said this, Many times, back in John chapter 3, verse 19, it says, This is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. Before Christ saved you, if you're in Christ today, before Christ saved me, we loved the darkness. We fled to darkness. We resisted the light. Now, although this group is invited by Christ and made responsible to keep the words of Christ, verse 51, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. What a promise, amen? And anyone today for that matter, if anyone keeps my word, they shall never see death. And if anyone keeps his word, that is a sign of salvation. Meaning they have everlasting life. You have everlasting life, you'll never see death. You will never see death as a believer because you will step, move on from this life right into the presence of Christ. There's no deep, dark chasm that you will pass through. It's immediate. Like the twinkling of an eye, you will be in the presence of your Savior. Your body will experience death. You will not. What a joy. So the moral evil of these Jews, along with their false confidence and much religious activity and their heritage, caused their spiritual vanity. They thought that they knew God. They actually taught about God. These are the Pharisees. These are the religious leaders who taught the oracles, the words of God. And Jesus said, you don't even know God. As a matter of fact, your father's the devil. What an indictment. They could no more believe absolute truth than they could come to the light. They were unenabled, totally powerless, impotent, dead in trespasses and sins. This is the universal sinfulness of man that manifests its unwillingness to come to the light. Inability. You can't. It's impossible. In the, un- the, the inability for anyone to believe is a, is a moral issue. It's not intellectual. It's not philosophical. It is, however, an inability. All sinners cannot come to Christ outside of the divine work of Christ in their lives. If man reacts negatively because he hears the truth about Jesus, as these Jews did, what hope is there for them? None. Unless... Unless God takes action on behalf of the man. You thankful for your salvation? Amen? we thankful for ourselves. Who do we thank? We thank God. Because we know we did not save ourselves. Christ saved us. That's grace. Man is totally incapable of obtaining saving faith apart from the sovereign grace of God alone. And what's depicted here in John chapter 9 is the absolute inability of man and the absolute necessity 
of Christ's intervention on behalf of man in order to believe. The inability to believe is symbolized here in John 9 by blindness from birth. This man was born blind. There's nothing he could do to make himself see. Nothing. It's impossible. So the human condition of being born in sin is equivalent to being blind from birth, spiritually speaking. Being born blind from birth. Now, the light of the world, Jesus Christ, just addressed these religious leaders who were spiritually blind, although they thought they could see. Which reveals for us that an individual's lack of sight does not mean that light is not present. Amen? The light was there, it's just they were blind to it. You know, it's been asked, you know, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody's there to hear it, does it make a noise? Well, the obvious answer is that there are sound waves that are created when the tree falls. But if there's no one there to pick up those waves and interpret them, no one hears it as noise. There must be a receiver. And if a set of ears are lacking, those sound waves cannot be interpreted. Amen? And the same is true of light. The lack of sight, blindness, does not mean that light is not there. Physical light reveals the condition of the eyes. It either sees it or it does not. The light of the world, Jesus Christ, reveals the condition of the soul. The Pharisees thought they saw. But they were horribly blind. So Jesus, what did he do? Look at the last verse of chapter 8. And so Jesus passed by. Frightful words. Frightful words when you think of Romans chapter 1 where God will turn a man over to himself. He will turn a man over to his unbelief. He will lift his hand of grace from a nation, turning a nation over to itself. Fearful place to be. Samson, in all the power that he had, granted by God's grace, when he meddled around and he messed around and he fornicated, it says the presence of the Spirit left him, but he did not know it. And soon he had his eyes gouged out and spent the rest of his life as a slave. And then by God's grace, he used them one more time. Mightyful, might, mightful and mighty power. And he took out all those Philistines. God's grace. So I invite you now, with that introduction, to open to John chapter 9 as we will read verses 1 through 7. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. 
The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which translated is sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you'll open our eyes this morning to the glorious truths of Scripture. Your word, written through godly men by inspiration of your Holy Spirit for your glory, for our edification. May your people, your church, be built up today in the truth. And for anyone here, this service or next, who walks in unregenerate, dead, and blind, we pray that you'll give them life and give them sight causing them to be born again. We pray for your glory, by your grace, in Jesus' name, amen. Title of the message, Believing is Being Enabled to See. Not seeing is believing. Not believing is seeing, but believing is being enabled to see. Now, in John 8, we witnessed the the utter ruin of the natural man. And when you read of the natural man in the Bible, the natural man are those who are unbelievers. You at one time were a natural man or natural woman. I was a natural man. We are now spiritual men and women by the grace of God. The Jews that Jesus confronted despised the goodness of Christ, hating and rejecting him because of their inability their inability to understand. And the natural man, the Bible says, cannot understand the things of God, and they are foolishness. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know, him, know them. It's impossible. Because they're spiritually discerned. It takes this supernatural action upon, of God on behalf of the man. So here in John 9, we observe the Lord dealing in grace acting according to His sovereign will. For it is sovereign grace, brothers and sisters, that seeks the sinner. Sovereign grace seeks out the sinner, without which no one can believe. Sovereignty. Sovereignty is the biblical concept of God's kingly, supreme rule and legal authority over the entire universe. Is He in absolute, total control? Absolutely. He is in absolute total control of his universe, which he spoke into existence. And everyone that will be saved is under the absolute sovereign control of the one who created them. Now in scripture, divine sovereignty is paradoxically contrasted with human responsibility. And we see, that's what we see here in John chapter 8 and 9. In chapter 8, it's the light of the world putting to test human responsibility. The sovereignty of God and salvation does not cancel out human responsibility. That's very clear in in John 8. Here in chapter 9, it's the light of the world, Jesus Christ acting in sovereign mercy after the failure of human responsibility has been demonstrated. Jesus passed them by. 
And if it weren't for God sovereignly seeking out the lost sinner, we would never be able to see Christ. It's not the sinner that seeks God. It's God who seeks the sinner. And then when that person is seeking for truth, it is proven that God has sought them and found them and he's drawing them. That's the draw of God. Producing in them, in them a desire to know the one who created them in his very image. It's grace. So mankind is totally blind to true spirituality. Now, most people will, com- will claim some form of spirituality, amen? Everyone's spiritual these days. Everyone, well, I know God is just not the same God you serve. Well, I serve Jesus, but, you know, you say Jesus is like this, and I say he's like this. Well, if you don't serve the Jesus that is penned here in this book, you don't know Jesus, says Jesus. These Jews, they claimed spirituality, all right? Jesus spends all the chapter 8 absolutely dismantling their false system of belief. And he said that they were deceived. They thought that they had eyes to see. As we'll see when we get to John 9.41 in next week, probably two weeks, Jesus will say to the Pharisees, you say that we see. Therefore, your sin remains. Why? Because you think you see and you're blind. You're blind. So, in this chapter, we learn again that the coming of the light has a twofold effect. It brings salvation to those who are blind, and we will see that in verses 6 through 38, while at the same time, it brings a shadow of judgment upon those who think they see, but yet are steeped in darkness. Verses 39 to 41. But this morning, there's four points of focus concerning Jesus Christ and His sovereign work of grace in and around our lives. And these four points are recognizable on a daily basis to the Spirit-filled Christian. But they're overlooked by the carnally-minded and absolutely invisible to the unbeliever. Point number one, we see the daily providence of our Lord in verse one. Point number two, we see the sovereign purpose of our Lord in verses two and three. Point three, the ministerial work of our Lord in verses four and five. And then finally, we see the miracle of our Lord in verses six and seven. Point number one, the daily providence of our Lord Verse 1, now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. Question, believers, do you recognize the providence of God in and around your life on a daily basis? Okay, providence. Providence refers to God's superintending activity over human actions in history. The providence of God. For example, we were in an accident on the freeway, and by the providence of God, it just so happened that a medical doctor was right behind us. He came to our rescue to save my little son before the emergency unit got there, and my son lives today because of the providence of God in providing that man at that moment to be there to minister. That's the providence of God. 
Now here's a blind man. By the providence of God, Jesus is passing by, coming outside of the temple, and likely this man is at the temple door, or at the gate rather, begging. That's what blind men did. They, they were beggars. And blindness was a major problem in antiquity. In the ancient biblical times, it was far more common than we would think. Jesus passes by a man blind from birth. A very common sight. This is an everyday happening. This is something that you walk by every day. It's a common sight. But here it's not a common passing by. In Jesus' day, blindness was so well known that Jesus included the blind in his parables. In Luke 14, 13, But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you. Jesus had healed many blind people. On other occasions here, as recorded in the Synoptic Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But here is the only case of congenital blindness. The only case of blindness for someone who was, that was born with it. Present at birth. So this event, therefore, represents figuratively and for the blind man, experientially, the birth of spiritual life. That's what this text reveals for us. Because if you read on through the chapter, you'll see that Jesus makes that comparison himself. Jesus also on many occasions uses blindness metaphorically to represent spiritual darkness. In Matthew 15, 14, he said, they are blind leaders of the blind. Talking about the Pharisees. They're blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. Numerous times he mentions it in Matthew 23, which we don't have time to look at. You can jot it down. But here was a blind man, a beggar. And most often when a beggar established a, a location to beg, that became his territory. You'll see guys as you drive through the city who have their own little corner. Amen? Your own little corner. Some guys have two. Different parts of town. I saw one of them yesterday. He's up in my neck of the woods up the hill here in Claremont, and he has another neck of the woods down by Point Loma. Because on Saturdays, it's very busy intersections there. But here, under the providential hand of God the Father, as led by the Holy Spirit, God the Son saw this man. What a joy. The man whom Jesus meets here after the Feast of Tabernacles has been blind from birth. Let's not forget that. He's been blind from birth. Now, how they knew this, we don't know. But that leads the disciples to ask the question about the origin of the disease. So, before we move on to point number two, my question to you in point number one is this. Do you recognize the providence of God in and around your life as a believer? If you get anything out of this today, ask these questions to yourself as a believer. If you're not a believer, I pray that the Spirit of God will work in you to grant you sight like this man here. So believers, do you recognize the providence of God in and around your life? Point number two, the sovereign purpose of our Lord, verses two and three. 
Verse 2, his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, the disciples, like most Jews, Jews of the day, they supposed that sin and suffering were intimately connected. If you suffered a sickness like this, blindness, that it was due to some sin. So here they ask, well, whose sin was it then, Lord? Was it the parent's sin that he was born like this, or was it his sin? Now, there was actually teaching in that day by the rabbis that a fetus could sin. If you were born with a disease like this, either the father sinned, the mother sinned, or the fetus itself sinned. How ridiculous. Granted, yes, you're born with a sin nature, but this is the belief they had, that a fetus could actually sin in the womb. And they assumed that such suffering was the result of sin, and the rabbis taught this by taking Exodus 20, verse 5 out of context. That reads, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. And it goes on to say, showing mercy to thousands who love me and obey. That verse does not mean that the child reaps the sins of the parent independently. In other words, like, oh, well, that's, that child is like that because their father or their mother sinned, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, and now that's the curse of God on the child. It's not what it's teaching. The meaning is this. When the fathers, plural, sin, the generations, plural, suffer the consequences. And how many times did Israel suffer the consequences nationally of their fathers, plural? Many times. Now, Ezekiel cleared up Israel's misinterpretation of this hundreds of years before this. Look at Ezekiel on the screen here, chapter 18. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me again saying, what do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel saying, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Notice what the Lord says. As I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. See, the exiles who misunderstood Exodus 20 verse 5 led them to this irresponsible, fatalistic approach of life. This was fatalism in their mind. That righteousness and wickedness was hereditary. Therefore, there was no reason to change one's ways. But God continues through Ezekiel, verse 20. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Everyone will be judged for their own sin. On the other hand, no child will be saved because of the faith of their parents, kids. Accept him or reject him. Jesus said, you're for me or you're against me. There's no in-betweening. So, although Ezekiel, the Lord cleared that 
misinterpretation up through Ezekiel. Here it was today, or in Christ's day, there was the same misinterpretation. So blindness, physical blindness, like all other bodily afflictions, is one of the ultimate effects of sin. It's part of the fall, amen? Because sin brought about disease. It brought about universal deterioration. Things are subject to decay now because of sin. It's a result of the fall. And finally, death, of course. But although sin, and all sin, is remotely related, or I should say all sickness is remotely related to sin in the fall of Adam, nevertheless, not all disease and sickness is always directly related to sin. It's very important that we understand this. Paul himself said in Galatians chapter 4, verse 13, you know, he writes to the church of Galatia, that because of physical infirmity, because I suffered, I preached the gospel to you at the first. There again, there's the providence of God. And within the sovereign framework of God, Paul suffered this. Many scholars believe that he suffered malaria and, and he would have to go to the um, higher altitudes um, for remedy, restoration. And through that, he was able to preach the gospel. 1 Timothy 5.23, Paul writes Timothy and he says, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stum- stomach's sake and for your frequent infirmities. Timothy had some medicinal value. Paul's last letter, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 20. Trophimus I left sick in Miletus. So as Paul was doing his ministerial work, he had to press on and he left his faithful brother ill. Ill. Now on the other hand, other sicknesses and other deaths were a result biblically of sin. The man healed back in chapter 5 by Jesus. Remember the, the man by the pool of Bethesda? Jesus healed him and he went back to him and he said to him in verse 14, afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Evidently, his disease was a result of sin, was the consequence of some sin. We have the case of leprosy in 2 Kings 5, which was a direct result of sin. We have the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, a direct result of sin. God put him to death, purifying his church. You have the painful death of Herod in Acts chapter 12, a direct result of sin, the judgment of God. You had the members of the Corinthian church in chapter 11 where you had sickness and death, again, a result of unrepentant sin. Now, seeing both sides there, practically speaking, brothers and sisters, it is almost, okay, almost always wrong, definitely insensitive, and theologically stupid to say to those that are suffering with illness or facing death, that it is A, either due to some secret sin they haven't confessed, or B, inadequate faith. Because if you had the faith, you would certainly be healed. Like in the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Which is such heresy. Man, do not waste your time with your best life now and all this nonsense. 
It's ridiculous and unbiblical. Because God may have other reasons for allowing illness and sorrow among his people. Jesus answers his disciples, verse 3. Neither this man nor his parents sin, but that, Hinal purpose clause, in order that the works of God should be revealed in him. So Jesus quickly rejects both alternatives, and he says, on the contrary. It happens so that God's work might be shown in the man. God is sovereign, amen? Here we're seeing the sovereign purpose of God in the life of one man who was born blind. Now, some scholars will say that the purpose clause here in, in verse 3b, but that, or in order that, that's a purpose clause, he's born blind in order that God should be revealed in him. They say that the purpose clause can be just as well as applied to verse 4. So it would change the punctuation a bit and it would read like this. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, period. But that. The works of God should be revealed in him, comma, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. So, therefore, it does not necessarily mean that God made the child suffer blindness for all those years, that the cure might reveal his greatness. But it could. God is sovereign. I mean, after all, if you remember, you know, Moses went to God, and, or actually God called Moses to himself, and he says, you're going to go deliver my people out of the hands of the Egyptians. Moses said to the Lord, my Lord, I, 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 I'm not eloquent. <laughs> Neither before nor since. You have spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. So the Lord said to him, Who made man's mouth? Who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore, go. Go. And I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. So yes, God does allow such things for his glory. But here in John 9, this man would be healed to see and then proclaim the glory of God in the person and the work of His eternal Son, Jesus Christ. So important. Trusting God's sovereignty, brothers and sisters, does not, is not cause for us to be lazy people who take a fatalistic approach to life. You know, if some say, well, if salvation is totally dependent upon God, why share the gospel? Because it's a means to His end, amen? Proclaiming gospel truth is a means to His end. He works in spite of us, amen? But never apart from us. What a joy that is. You know, some people will, you know, like some hyper-Calvinist, you know, well, God's going to do what He's God's going to do, so why do anything? That's just foolish. It's foolish. Quite to the contrary. And that leads us to point number three, the ministerial work of our Lord. 
So this, going back to point two, the sovereignty of God. Number one, do you see as a believer the providential hand of God in and through your life? Number two, do you trust God fully and completely that He is sovereign over your life and over the universe in which you dwell? It takes a load off your shoulders, I'll tell you that. He's sovereign. We simply walk by faith. And as we walk by faith, we will be busy about doing His ministry. Verse 4, I, which is plural, by the way, and some of your translations will read, we, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, the night is coming when no one can work. So as, as sinners saved by grace, we must serve face, faithfully here is what we see, without delay. So the expression here, while it is day, is explained in the very next verse. Jesus says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. He's speaking to his disciples here. He's referring to the very brief time that he will be physically present with his disciples. In the night, the night that is coming refers to the looming shadow of the cross. His purpose for coming. So Jesus is saying here, look, this is not about theological debate on sin and suffering, fellas. This is about doing the will and the work of my Father. We must do it when? We must do it right now. Time is short. We must do it now. Don't sit around here debating why he's born blind. We have work to do. But that's what a spirit-led life does. A spirit-led life, being led by God the Holy Spirit, produces a Christian. It works in a Christian, someone who is intimately acquainted with the providential hand of God in and through their life, understanding the sovereignty of God over their life. And as a product, you do the work of the ministry. Jesus' entire life ministry was according to the power and the leading of the Holy Spirit. Amen? I mean, he came into the world and was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Luke chapter 1, verse 35. He grew and became strong in spirit, filled with all wisdom. Luke chapter 2, verse 40. He was always about his father's business. Luke chapter 2, verse 49. The Holy Spirit himself descended in, upon, in bodily form upon the Lord Jesus Christ like a dove. Luke three twenty-two. Jesus was filled with the Spirit and led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be what? tempted by the devil himself. In Luke 4, Jesus returned from there in the power of the Holy Spirit to Galilee in chapter 4, verse 14 of Luke. And then in the synagogue in Nazareth, his own hometown, he stood up, he took the scroll, and he read from Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Luke chapter 4, verse 18. And in that, he was declaring that all he would do in his ministry would be by the power of the Spirit. May our lives be as such, amen. Spirit-led Christians. Spirit-led. Because if as a Christian you operate independently, outside of the leading of the Holy Spirit, you will exist blindly and miss the providential hand of God. And you will not see the blind man at the gate. 
You will not see the one that God has in your life for a purpose greater than yourself. You miss it. But rather, you're standing there attempting to figure out why. Hmm, I wonder why he was born blind, like the disciples did. Lord, who sinned? This man or his parents? You know, certain Christians are like that. They hop around from church to church. They never settle down. They're never accountable to anyone. They don't serve, but they are quick to participate in theological debate. They live to fight. And eventually these kind of people are easy to recognize. They, they fly under the radar for, for a period of time. And they're the ones that want you to know what they know. But if after you spend some time with them, you realize they don't really know what they don't know. And they don't want to hear from anybody what they don't know. They don't know. <laughs> they become preoccupied with abstract theological problems and they become consumed with it. Or they become the self-proclaimed critics. They just run around critiquing preachers and ministries and, and churches and they never do anything productive for the glory of God. They're self-consumed in their, their theological and, 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 apo and apologetic training. That's the extent of their life. Now, theological learning, understanding, debating, arguing, finding against false doctrine, there's a place for that, and it is very, very important. Amen? It's very important. We must fight for the faith. We must contend for the faith. That's the instruction that Paul gave to Timothy. Contend for the faith. Or actually, it was Jude. I mean, after all, Jesus just spent all of John 7 and 8 destroying the Pharisees in debate, did he not? He certainly did. But the breakdown comes when that's all that someone does. That's all that they do. And such an attitude is simply the result of pride. Pride. Proverbs 21.24 says, A proud and haughty man, scoffer is his name, he acts with arrogant pride. Not only men, but many women these days. Same thing, men and women. Ecclesiastes 5.3, a fool's voice is known by his what? Many words. You know, we were given one mouth and two ears for a reason, amen? We ought to listen twice as much as we speak. Proverbs 15.2, the tongue of the wise uses knowledge what? Rightly. Which means there's definitely a wrong way to use knowledge. But the mouth of fools pours forth foolishness. So theology and doctrine, very important. If you've attended here for any amount of time, you know that I stress theology and doctrine and the study of it as being essential. But we just cannot lay there and drown in it. We must swim. <laughs> Amen? In other words, we must become what it teaches. And I don't want to get overly topical here in, in this message, but I do want to spend a little time looking at two of the many dangers to a healthy church. That was one of them. The debater, the wordsmith. They like to speak with four or five syllable words to impress you. Then you walk away scratching your head. What did he say? Definitely wasn't edifying, but man, does he know a lot. Never serves. They never do anything. Another danger to the church in, in the ministerial work of Jesus, that's the context here. Our time is short. We must do the work of Him who sent me, 
Jesus said to the disciples. The other danger is the sluggard, just simply lazy. They're steeped in complacency or laziness, many times self-pity. That's another destroyer of self-pity. They're always talking about tomorrow, and tomorrow what? It never comes, does it? It never shows up. They're always talking about tomorrow. Then they talk about tomorrow so much that they become weary, so they rest a lot. They have to take a nap. They're weary about talking about tomorrow, and they become like a door on its hinges. In Proverbs 26.14 says, As the door turns on its hinges, so does a lazy man on his bed. That's a funny picture, isn't it? Such is the life of the sluggard. And Proverbs uses sluggard as a very amusing figure. I thought I'd share some of them with you this morning. A sluggard's too tired to get up in the morning. Proverbs 6, 9, How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? He just lays there. He gets up to eat, and he goes back to bed. The sluggard offers... Also, he offers absolutely ridiculous excuses for his laziness. Proverbs 26, 13 says, The lazy man says, there's a lion in the road, a fierce lion in the street. So here's a man devoted to fear. He'll, he'll, he'll concoct some type of fearful situation where he doesn't have to get up off that bed. He wants to stay in the house. That also leads to anxiety, even depression, if you think like that. Also, the sluggard, his, his vineyard, his fields, or his yard is a mess. Proverbs 24, 30. I went by the field of the lazy man and by the vineyard of the man devoid of understanding, and there it was, all overgrown with thorns. Its surface was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. Modern vernacular, you know, he's so busy laying on his bed, watching TV, playing video games, that he re- neglects responsibility in daily life. His mind will not be on the ministry, the ministerial work of Jesus Christ. Such a man is a sluggard, and a sluggard is instructed to seek advice from the ant. In Proverbs 6, verse 6, Go to the ant, you sluggard, consider her ways and be wise, which, having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers food in the harvest. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? You know, I read this week that the community life of ants is more highly organized than bees and wasps. Amazing. Yet they have no commander, no overseer, no ruler, like, you know, bees have a queen bee. Amazing. So the ant is an object lesson that teaches planning and and production. This is no life for a believer, the life of a sluggard. There's no life for a believer at all. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 5.8, If anyone does not provide for his own house, and especially for those of his household, he's denied the faith and he's worse than an unbeliever. I mean, even unbelievers, I know many unbelievers are work very hard. They're very diligent. If we have Christ, we cannot be like this. Not that anyone is, in, is here. We have a very productive church. Jesus is talking about the ministry. He's talking about the work is now. Ephesians 5.15 says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time. Because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of what? The will of the Lord is. We must know the will of the Lord, according to his written word. 
So we only have our lifetime to do the work. Only our lifetime, and it's flying by. Anyone over 40, you know that time flies, amen? (laughs) Flies by. If you're in your 20s, you don't understand this yet. It flies. telling you what. So we must redeem it now. And the number one work of ministry, the number one work of ministry is the hardest work, which is the most time-consuming, yet most rewarding, and that is the work of discipleship. We ourselves must be discipled and we must in turn disciple others. When you make disciples, you make effective disciples, every other facet of ministry will fall into place. You'll have strong evangelism in every other facet of ministry within the church. Be strong. We're building that now. I rejoice in that here. But Jesus says in verse 4 to his disciples, there's a blind man here. He needs to see physically for sure, but even more so, he needs to see spiritually, and our time is limited. Our time is limited. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. Verse 5, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Now that light was carried on through the disciples, amen? Jesus ascended back to heaven. The light of Christ was carried on through the disciples and the light of Christ through the disciples is evident within his church today. That's us. We carry on the light of Christ. It's the light of Christ in you. You're a city set on a hill. A city set on a hill cannot be what? Hidden. When you light a lamp, what do you do with it? You place it on a lampstand. You don't put a basket over it. You put it on a lampstand so that it illuminates the entire room. People in the room might not like the light, but they cannot deny that there's light in the room. Amen? So, all Christians, all of us, are to serve with a sense of urgency, making the most of our time. Jesus said we must make the most of this time, he said to his disciples. If not, you'll miss God's providential appointments. And you'll forget his sovereign purpose, which was point two, and become lazy, point three. That leads us to point four, the miracle of our Lord. Verses six and seven. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with saliva, his saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with clay, and he said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which, translated, is sent. So he he went and washed and came back, what? Seeing. So the watchful, trusting, serving slaves of Jesus Christ will then be able to witness the miraculous works of Christ. Jesus makes this mud plaster and he wipes it in his eyes. Now, in this day, there was a belief that saliva had healing properties. It had some medicinal power. Now, why the Lord chose to do this, we do not know. I've read many commentaries Many commentators, they want to comment on this. I don't even want to share with them. Some of them are just ridiculous. and We don't know. It's pretty simple. We don't know. They get all spiritual and they spiritualize the text away and it gets crazy. But Mark's gospel records two other instances where Jesus does the same thing. And then he commands this man. He says, go, wash in the pool of Siloam. Translated what? Sent. 
Now, this pool was at the south end of the city of Jerusalem. And if you're going to go on our trip with us in November, hello, we're going to have fun. You'll see that pool. You'll see that very pool. So we look forward to that. There's still water in it today. So water flowed to it from the Gion Spring down in the Kidron Valley. And Hezekiah, hundreds of years prior to the time of Christ, constructed this aqueduct in 701 B.C. to channel water into the pool of Siloam. So that they would have this secure water supply if the city was, if they ever set siege against the city. You have a water supply. Usually that's what you do. You set siege against the city and you would just wait there with armed men until they starve themselves out or lose or miss water and then you take the city. So Hezekiah built this aqueduct. And this is a very important detail for a couple of reasons. Number one, it was the source of water at the Feast of Tabernacles. If you were here with us back in chapter 7, during the Feast of Tabernacles, the priests would march down to the Pool of Siloam with that golden vessel. They would, they would pick up water with that vessel. They would march back and they would be singing psalms and they would have willow branches and bowls of fruit and they would hold it up over these priests and the priests would come as they were reciting songs and, and the trumpeter and they would pour this water out on the altar. And it was at that moment where Jesus cried out in John seven thirty seven on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus cried, stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, the Jews were celebrating God providing water from a rock in the wilderness wanderings, and they would commemorate that by taking the water out of the pool, pouring it on that altar. The pool of Siloam is where they got the water. Scent, translated scent. Secondly, the name of the pool bears symbolic importance as to Jesus. Think about this. Jesus is described 20 times as the one who was sent by God. Sent by God. Siloam meaning sent is where Jesus, the sent one of God, sent this man to go wash. The very water that represented him. The blind man experienced Jesus. The very source of the Feast of Tabernacles water, he experienced in a very miraculous way. Jesus commanded the man. What did the man do? So he went and he washed and he came back with sight to see. So the man's response to Jesus, what does that indicate for us? It indicates for us that obedience is a characteristic of genuine saving faith. Don't say you know Christ if you don't obey. If you don't obey and you're a Christian, repent. Is your life characteristic of true saving faith? The young people are going to be in here, our youth group, from down the street, they're going to be in here next service. I'm going to ask them that question. Because you're growing up in the church and you know all this truth, does your, is your life characteristic of someone who's saved by the truth? This man also experienced Jesus as the very source of the Feast of Tabernacles light. 
Remember on the last day, the great day is the feast and the court of the women. What they did is they would light those four large candelabras and they would illuminate all of Jerusalem. And it was there that Jesus stood up. It was either during the time that they were illuminating the city of Jerusalem or it was the day after on the last day if they weren't lit up and Jesus stood up whatever day it was and he said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness but have the light of life. All this blind man knew was darkness. All he ever experienced was darkness. Jesus gave him the ability to see light. He gave him the ability to see shapes and colors. And his faith, his testimony, as we will see this very man make a stand against the hostile opponents of Jesus. We'll see that next time. So again, the inability of man to believe is clearly symbolized here by, the bl- by blindness from birth. Jesus said, unless you are what? Born again, you cannot see the kingdom. No man can make himself born again. This is the supernatural work of God coming down upon the sinner by grace. So this man's blindness leads to an encounter with Jesus according to God's divine purpose, God's divine plan, the providential care of God upon one man blind from birth within the sovereign purpose of God Himself. His eyes are open and He sees. His mind is open and He believes. So the human condition of being born into sin, as all all men and women are, is equivalent to being blind from birth, spiritually speaking. This man was condemned in a world of darkness by his condition. He was unable to see, and he never asked Jesus to see. He never saw Jesus standing before him. But there was Jesus as he passed by, unable to see. It was Jesus who saw the man. And Jesus went to the man. And perhaps as Jesus stood there looking at the man is when his disciples said, Hey, Lord, speaking of which, see this guy all the time, who sinned, this man or his parents? That he was born blind. They knew he was born blind. How they knew, we do not know. He had no idea what it meant to see. This is not sight. Like many times in biblical times, people would be born with sight, and they would lose sight. This man was born blind. He didn't even know what he was missing, but he knew he was missing something. Ray Charles knew that he's missing something because he had something at one time. He had sight. Stevie Wonder was born blind, I think. Stevie doesn't know. Ray knows, or knew. He's dead now. So he didn't even know what he was missing, although he knew he was missing something. How many of you, before Christ saved you, you knew that something's missing? No matter how good life can be, something's missing. It's missing. He was a blind beggar whose condition was hopeless. And Jesus came to him. Came to him. Has he come to you? Has he given you eternal light to see? Was his eternal life? which is a gift of grace, here it is, alone. You add nothing to it. You can do nothing to gain it. 
He even gives you the faith to believe. And if you don't know him this morning, I pray that he's here facing you, ready to clear your eyes so that you can see. If you don't know Christ, I pray that you'll cry out to him. If perhaps you're here thinking that you see like these Pharisees because you know a lot of truth about Jesus, Jesus said you must be born again. Must be born again to even be able to perceive the things of God. So I trust that the Lord has you here for a purpose if you don't know him this morning to grant you sight by grace. Now leave that between you and him. If you have any questions, you can ask me. I'd love to talk to you at the end of the service or I can direct you to someone that can assist you with this great truth. But for the believer, church, I encourage you with this. Follow this outline. Number one, be sober-minded. Why? So that you're able to recognize the providential work of God. Understanding that God is sovereign. Perhaps you have a sickness, an illness. Trust. He's sovereign. And may He be glorified by your ailment, by your suffering, by your despair. May He grant you the grace to stand in this season of your life. And may we encourage you along the way, but we have to know so that we can encourage you. So that's trust. And then thirdly, serve faithfully. May we never understand God's sovereignty as being something that we don't participate in. He's sovereign and he calls us to action because he is sovereign. I mean, we never stand back with our arms folded going, God is sovereign, he's going to do what he's going to do, so I don't need to do anything. Amen? That's foolishness. That's the life of the sluggard. And when we do those things by faith, according to his grace, you will see the miraculous, powerful work of Christ in and through your life. For His glory, amen? All for His glory. Let's stand and let's pray. Almighty God, we thank You for this glorious passage of Scripture that defines for us um, your abundant, glorious grace on the life of one individual, a man born blind. Father, I pray that your grace would be dispensed on all of us. But Lord, for those who don't know you today, I pray that you'd open their eyes, that you'd lift the veil, give them sight to see, ears to hear, heart to receive your glorious gospel truth, the good news of Christ, whom you sent to live, to die, to raise, and to ascend so that we may have hope and have life. And for your church, sinners saved by grace, may we, Lord, be effective ministers of the gospel, being watchful, recognizing your providential hand in our lives, trusting your sovereign will and work, and obeying your commanded will to do the work of the ministry so that 
you would be glorified in us and through us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.